Good to be with you again this morning. Um, John is um, series doing a series in Luke called um, Certainty in Christ. I'm not in Luke, but I am going to use that theme, continue that, certainty, surety. You see the title, um, Well-Placed Confidence. That's our theme this morning. Let me read the verses to you. They're especially the first ones, very familiar to you, I'm sure. <clears throat> Philippians 1, 6 through 8. This is the word of God. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all, <coughs> you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word again this morning. We do pray and ask that by your spirit you would apply it to our hearts. It would be of use to us and we in your kingdom. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So well-placed confidence. So good question to start with, kids too. Uh, what are you confident of? What are you absolutely sure will happen? Kids are thinking it's summer and I know homework's coming. Or adults are thinking, I gotta go to work tomorrow. The bills are there. But what are you absolutely sure will happen? And as a child, I was sure, very, very sure, that when I grew up, I would be a policeman. But that changed when I found out what the gun was for. That didn't last long. As an adult, I became more realistic, I guess you would say, and things I was confident about, I realized really were more in the category of wishes and hopes more than they were things I was absolutely sure of. Well, there's really nothing for sure in this world. We hope and we plan and we try, but nothing's for sure. And so today's text, Paul is confident of something in Philippians 1.6, and the word here for sure is confident. It means um, persuaded, convinced, certain. He is confident, but it's not confidence in himself. He is joy-filled about it, especially those last two verses about their partnership in the gospel, but not because of them as such and not because of the partnership itself as the prime factor, but because of what comes next. And you notice, he says, I'm confident because he, he, God, began something. The only things in this life that we can be truly confident about are the things that God has done. God has a long-term plan for the life of the Christian. And that gives us a deep and abiding confidence about Monday morning, about every morning, about every moment for that matter. So this morning, for the purposes of the message, I want to confine our thoughts to verse 6. <clears throat> we already sang about it, he who began a good work. 
And this verse is one of the foundational ones of Christianity, and it teaches a lot about doctrine on several things, on the sovereignty of God and salvation, on the election of believers, God begins it, does it, and about sanctification and glorification, and we'll get into that. The concept, though, that comes out most uh, strongly is what's called the perseverance of the saints, or it's also referred to as once saved, always saved. Meaning, if God has put you in Christ, he will, in fact, keep you in Christ. God finishes what he starts. Perseverance of the saints has been better explained as preservation of the saints by God. We do persevere to glory, but that's only because God is preserving us, keeping us. And so I want to take the text in three parts, simple outline. First, God took the initiative in salvation. Secondly, salvation is a good thing that he will carry on. And thirdly, follows naturally enough, he'll actually complete it. So began, carry on, a good thing, and then complete. Complete. And God does it all. Justification is by faith, sanctification is by faith, and glorification is by faith, all of it. So first point, let's meditate on this great truth that God takes the initiative in saving a sinner. No one seeks God first. No one comes up with the idea even of seeking God on their own. And that's because Romans 3.10 tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. That's because we were conceived in sin and that in our natural-born condition, we're not merely neutral towards God. People don't really like to hear this, but in our natural-born condition, we, in fact, hate him. We might be doing it politely, but we're shaking our fist in his face, according to the Bible. So because we referred to as being as called total depravity, that means that we would never decide on our own to seek God. Now, total depravity has been misunderstood. That might not be the best phrase. Total depravity does not mean that each person has committed every sin possible, no. But it does mean that all parts of our being are infected with sin. And some scholars have said it might be more accurate to call it radical depravity, meaning everywhere, or utter, again, reaching into everything, utter depravity instead of total. It means, though, that there's, there's not even a small island of righteousness in us that can be appealed to or coaxed out. In John 3:44, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. There's no spark of good under which just the right conditions could be fanned into flame. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, and you can't reason with a corpse. You can't use sweet, tender words to a corpse and say, I know you don't feel well, but could you just try to at least sit up? a little. 
Our natural-born spiritual condition is like that of a corpse. Corpses don't have the presence of mind or the desire to wake up. That's because they're dead. So, of course, God must take the initiative. Who else could other than God? Everyone else is born dead. Well, lots of people have problems with the ideas of predestination and election, but I've come to believe their real problem, because this was my experience, their real problem is actually with this total depravity that we're talking about here. It boils down to this question, how total is total depravity? Or put another way, at the fall of man into sin in the Garden of Eden, how far did he fall? Total depravity is total, not partial, and we fell all the way. Not even 99.99% of the way. Dead in sin means dead in sin. And so, we're not in need of resuscitation, but regeneration. Being resuscitated implies that you were once alive or you just passed out, but it's far worse than that. You and I need a completely new life, one that did not exist before, not just a fix-up or a repair to the one you already have. God doesn't make, you realize this, God does not make a sinner better. He makes him new. And our text today says that God, in fact, does just that. He began this good work. God initiates salvation. So we've got to answer this. Another question that people don't like. Is salvation a result of your decision or God's decision? It's God's decision. Now, I did make a decision. You did too. If you're in Christ, no question about that. It's just that that decision, the one that I made, which I did make, is the first one that I remember. I don't remember God's prior decision because I was dead at the time. I had to be told about it later, as it were. A whole lot goes on before our salvation, yet we do say, I receive Christ. I decided to follow Jesus, but all of that was due to God's prior work in my life. That's one aspect of infant baptism that I like so much. While it's not a guarantee of salvation, it does present a great picture. The family all standing around, mom and dad and other kids if they have them, parents and grandparents, the body of the church, anticipating and praying and trusting that in time this child will profess faith. At his infant baptism, our son, Dave, threw up on the pastor's robe. He really did. And wearing black robes, and the pastor turned around to say, show the kid, and he threw up down the pastor's back. Well, <laughs> I think that's even an even better picture <laughs> of our natural-born condition. We're not just out of it spiritually. We're throwing up on God. And yet, he cleans up the mess, and he sends Jesus to die for us anyway.
We love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Well, that's point number one, that he began this work. He made, as it's been referred to, a preemptive strike of grace. Well, moving to the second point, uh, we want to say that this salvation is a good thing. Now, that sounds obvious, but the text says that God carries on and continues the good work, and it is good. The thing that he began in us, point one, now number two, is good that he's continuing. And I hope you see it that way. I think you do. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that God has plans for us and that they are good, not for calamity, but for good. I hope it's not you, but some see God's work in their lives as painful and sort of irksome, and surely there's a better way to accomplish this. Well, if you've slipped into that thinking, reject it now by an act of faith if you believe that. It's not true. Repent of that sinful idea that God's work in you is somehow not good. His plans are always good, even if we can't see it at the time. Barbara used to do cross-stitch. She would be sitting across the room sewing, and from my point of view, looking at the, the backside, it looked like something mixed up and scraggly and odd threads hanging out. And I said, what is that? And she turned it around and showed it to me, and then I saw it was a farmhouse with trees and animals and a red barn. But from my side, I couldn't see that. Sometimes that's how our life appears, jumbled and chaotic, but it's very clear to God, and it's good. And one day, we will see it completely from his point of view. So take it by faith now, that's what he's doing. <clears throat> that's from Jeremiah I mentioned about uh, good plans, but Jeremiah also talks in another place about going down to the potter's house. You probably remember that, and Jeremiah's watching him work, and he forms the clay into beautiful pottery, and sometimes in the process, he reforms it back into a lump and seems to start over, but he's really making something even better. And I wonder, do you trust the potter? Do you let yourself be molded into Christ-likeness by him, or do you fight it? Maybe not outwardly, but do you sometimes doubt that it's a good work? Now, it's not in, as such, what I'm going to say next is not in the Jeremiah passage, but I think I'm on safe theological ground from the rest of Scripture to say this. When the potter finishes making the vessel, he gets up from the wheel, and he goes over to the sink to rinse his hands off, and when he does, something spectacular is revealed, nail scars. The hands that mold and shape your life are the same hands that were nailed to the cross. And we must not miss that connection. Can God be trusted to be the one at work in your life in carrying on sanctification today? Look to the cross for the answer, yes, he can. If we're bucking and fighting what God's doing in our lives, we should quit that. We should see it 
as his work. And we have a tendency to think, well, yes, of course, I'm sure he's at work, but it's not that thing or problem that I actually have to face on Monday at work or the actual trial that I'm going through right now. Not that, surely. We tend to think it's something else God is going to use to sanctify us, some as yet unknown um, upcoming thing that we will recognize surely as the work of God and we'll agree to that and we'll approve of it. No, it's not. It's what's happening right now. Let's learn to see our present circumstances as difficult as they might be as God's present work of sanctification in our lives. And notice too, the verse says, in you. Not among you all generally, but in you personally. Now, of course, he's working in others in general as well. But let's rejoice that God himself is at work in you. And it's good. Third point, God will complete it. The word complete here has in view bringing something actually to a goal. It does imply the process, and that's true, but it focuses on the goal, the end result. And this takes us, I'm sure you probably heard this, to the third grammatical tense of salvation. You've probably heard this. One word, salvation, has three grammar tenses, past, present, and future. Past is, in, in my case, I was saved in October of 1981. And that was my initial coming to Christ. That was my justification when I was declared just in front of God by the work of Jesus on my behalf. That was a one-time act of God, past. And then the present tense is, I am now, all of you can say too, I am now being saved. I am in the long process of sanctification, of being made into the likeness of Christ. And then in the future future tense, I can also say, and you can too, that a day is coming when I will finally be saved completely in the sense of reaching this end goal, goal that we call glorification, glory in heaven. And in the text, the, that future time is referred to as the day of Jesus Christ, and that's coming. And this wonderful verse tells us that you and I will be ready for that, even if it's tonight, even if I don't make it off the platform, I'll make it to heaven. That's because God is doing it. He will complete my salvation. For the thief on the cross, his justification, his sanctification, and his glorification all took place in one day. Less than a day, a few hours. The thief, just to clear this up for us, the thief had no time at all to do anything righteous for himself. He was nailed to a cross the whole time. It was all a work of God. It is all God's timing and plan. Now, it's true that for most of us, it's a much longer process. And the Christian life, the sanctification part, the Christian life is full of ups and downs. And some days it's the gas pedal, and other times it's the brakes. And sometimes 
we are richly aware of his blessings and feel like we're soaring with the eagles, and then other days it's wading and waddling through mud puddles in the rain like ugly ducklings. But even that, the mud, could lead to soaring again because it could be God working in us and increasing hatred of sin, heightening our sensitivity to it. <clears throat> so part of the sanctification process is that cycle of coming to a new level of understanding of your sin, looking to glory, the third step, thinking, surely, <laughs> have you had this experience? Surely this must be the depth of my sin. And then it happens all over again in another set of circumstances. And in those times, you say, surely this is the bottom of it. Jack Miller says, cheer up, it's even worse than you think. Your sin is deeper than you were aware of even today in this last, latest expression of it. But cheer up, seriously, because as bad as your sin is, the gospel of grace reaches that deep. You're headed for glory. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Had that kind of experience recently in retirement. I'm finally retired and <clears throat> um, yet I realize, I've realized another aspect of my sin nature. I had started thinking that I've been through this process enough times in my Christian life and now that I'm retired, that overall I'm closer to closer to understanding it and plumbing its depths. I'm 70 now, and I think maybe I'm understanding it. I'm nowhere close. Last week, we went back to Lexington, South Carolina for the funeral of a friend, and I thought I knew that city where we live for almost 20 years. But even this trip, we saw new things. Now, I say I know Lexington but obviously, no way have I been down every street. And we drove by our old house, and I realized that since our yard was three-quarters of an acre, I still haven't set my foot on every inch of those three-quarters of an acre. And that's the yard I thought I knew well, but expanded to the rest of the country and to the world. And you can see how much of your sin nature remains unseen even though you live here. Sorry to be discouraging, but there are lots of places you haven't sinned yet. <laughs> but cheer up. <laughs> the gospel of grace is bigger and more wonderful than you could possibly imagine. Glory is coming. That's how big a sinner I am, and you are as well, and that's how much we need Jesus. Well, trying to close a bit. <clears throat> the last words of our verse talk about the day of Jesus Christ. So let's close by thinking about that for a moment. All of life will come to an end one day, to a day when we will stand before the judgment seat of God, and the main issue that day will be, what have you done with Christ in your life, whether he is your Savior or not, and so Paul rightly refers to that day as the day of Christ Jesus. And he is the focus of it all, and it'll be an extremely sharp focus that day. One of my favorite writers and speakers is Brian Chappell, and he wrote a book called Christ-Centered Preaching, in which he says Jesus is on every page of the Bible. 
Old and New Testament. Now, sometimes it's obscure, <clears throat> kind of hidden. Other times it's obvious and direct, like today's text or all the Gospels. The very first reference to Christ is obscure. It's in Genesis 3, and we're told that after Adam and Eve sinned, that God, you might remember this, provided animal skin clothing for them because they were ashamed. So even that early in Scripture, the idea is revealed that a living creature must die to provide covering for shame and sin. Some more of the um, <clears throat> more obscure ones, the bronze serpent in Numbers 21, the poison snakes came into the camp and you could avoid being killed if you looked up to the brass serpent on the tree, which was a prefiguring of Christ on the cross. Others are <clears throat> the fourth man in the furnace in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar saw not just the three, but a fourth man who stayed in the furnace and died so they could come out. The ram in the thicket when Isaac was going to be sacrificed. Abraham was ready to kill him, and God stopped him and said, use that ram that's caught in the bush. That was a picture of Christ, a substitute sacrifice. Uh, Jonah in the whale's belly for three days, a figure of Christ. The balm of Gilead, maybe you've heard of that. Some special anointing oil or something, um, which, to put it sort of bluntly and quickly, the balm of Gilead is the chemo for our sin cancer. He is the balm of Gilead. What I want to do now to close <clears throat> is to read off 32, sorry, 32 names of Jesus' references to him in the Bible. Are you ready? He is the rock, Emmanuel, the healer, the bright morning star, the holy one, the master, the shield, the lamb of God, the great high priest, the king of glory, the prince of peace, the strong tower, the righteous branch, the lion of Judah, the bridegroom, the hiding place, the way, the truth, the life, the door, the resurrection, the son of man, the good shepherd, the day spring, the man of sorrows, the living water, the alpha and the omega, and the author and finisher of our faith. You see what God has done for you to prepare you for the day of Christ Jesus. So on the day of Jesus Christ, can you imagine all the glory that will rightly accrue to him? Billions of redeemed souls gathering around him from all ages, shouting yes and amen to the Lord of Lords. And if you're in Christ by faith, you will be there too. And this will be the last and greatest testament to well-placed confidence.
because he who began a good work in you will indeed see it through to completion in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for your saving grace. Thank you for your long view plans for us. Thank you for your long-suffering patience with us, for striving with us in sanctification. And we ask this day that you would add many bricks to the wall of confidence that we have in you. And so thank you for this promise today. And we know a guarantee is only as good as the one who makes it, and so we rejoice in hearing it again from you this morning. And so we say again that we know you are our good father, and when his children ask for bread, he freely gives it to them and doesn't trick them with a stone instead. And this is good bread, living bread from heaven. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.